Our scripture reading this morning is Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And it reads this. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. The title of the message is Eviction Notice. Eviction Notice. How many of you have ever been a tenant? Okay, how many of you have ever been the landlord? Right. I just paid off my landlord, so I don't have to be the tenant no more. Right, But uh, for those of you that have had an apartment or, or been leasing a house or, or whatever the case may be, uh, somebody else owns whatever it is that you're driving or living in or whatever the case may be, right? And so they have uh, some stake in whatever that is. They have some ownership of that until you've purchased it. Well, here we have an example of uh, some tenants, and we have a landlord who is coming at uh, one point in the Scriptures here to get what... Uh, is rightfully his, what he deserves. And as I just read for you, you heard a little bit about uh, their response. Not a very good response at that. So we have noticed over the last uh, couple of chapters, a uh, couple of messages that Pastor Mark has been preaching for us, and we have seen as Jesus approaches uh, the spiritual leaders of the day, the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, and those chief priests, those religious leaders were trying to uh, trip Jesus up to get him pinned in some kind of a lie or do something wrong to discredit himself. Jesus had a response to every one of these occasions. Most recently, it was his authority that was being challenged, and Jesus responded by essentially not answering them the way in which they wanted to hear him respond. And so now, before these religious leaders have an opportunity to skedaddle again, he shares with them one last saying, or in this case, a parable. And it's a parable of judgment on these religious leaders of Israel. He wanted to express and explain to them where their sin was going to lead them if they persisted and if they continued in the way that they are living and leading. I'm going to put the outline for you up, all of it, because I am not very good at remembering to hit the clicker. So you just get to see all of it. 
right now. All right? So as we go through this text, we're going to see that Jesus describes the hope of God, the kindness of God, the severity of God, and the triumph of God throughout this text. But before we get there, I would like to go before the throne of the Lord this morning and ask for his clarity of thought, clarity of speech, and also for our hearts and our ears to be receptive to that which he would have for us this morning. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, God, again, we come before you. I pray with a humble spirit that we are here to hear from your word, to hear the truths that you have to communicate to us and how to apply these to our lives today. God, I pray for clarity of speech as I endeavor to communicate what you would have for us this morning. I would pray that the listener would have ears that are ready to hear and a heart that is receptive to you. God, I pray that I would decrease this morning and that you would increase. God, may you be honored and glorified by all that transpires here this morning. And I would ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, there's a kind of a subtext to this particular passage. It's back in Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to take you there, but if you have notes, you can kind of jot that down. Uh, but Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7, sets a little bit of uh, history for what Jesus is bringing forth this morning as he is sharing this parable. And the first part, as we look at verse 1, we see that there is the hope of God here. It says, and he began to speak to them, that's Jesus speaking in parables to these religious leaders, and the parable goes as follows. He said, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the tenants and went into another country. So where do we see hope of God in this passage? Let me ask you, how many of you have ever planted a garden? Right? And when you plant that garden... You have a hope, a desire that it's going to yield something back, right? You don't plant that garden expecting to, to weed it and water it and it to give you nothing, right? Here there's a picture of a man who is putting a lot of time, money, energy, and investment into a property, right? And then he's giving this property to these tenants to go ahead and work the property and take care of the property. And he has a hope that these people are going to be able to produce fruit that he can benefit from. So too God has a hope in us as he has invested and continues to invest in his children and his people that we would have Something to produce for him. As he looks at my life, as he looks at your life, and all of that, that he has invested into you, what is there for him to see? What, what produce do we have for him? In verse 2, we see some responses. Now, I never, and you can ask her, Ask Holly. I never once responded to my landlord the way that these guys do, huh? Did I ever send Ron back to you after beating him up? Mm-mm. Right? Well, here in this illustration or this parable, you've got the guy who has invested his time and energy and all this into this property. And then when the season came, 
He sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, this is a customary thing. All right. In order to retain legal right to this property, he had to receive produce from it. So he did what he was supposed to. He sent someone to go and retrieve uh, this produce. In verse 3, here's the first response. They took him, this servant, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Why would they do this? Well, the truth is, they wanted the vineyard for themselves. Right? And I think the idea for, for us, if we lease a car or if we are renting a house, the, the intention or desire is we want it to be ours, right? And so we're making these payments uh, towards this car so that we can get the, the lien off of it and, it and it be mine outright. Well, these guys, rather than doing what they were supposed to, desired this for themselves in a very selfish manner and decided they were going to beat this man and send him away. And then he goes on. This is where we're seeing the kindness, believe it or not, of God. All right, Because after the first time that that happens, do you think that the landlord is uh, going to just send somebody else and send somebody else and send somebody else, or are they going to deal with this situation harshly? You can answer that. Harshly. Right? This is where that whole eviction notice comes into play. Right? Okay, If you're not going to play by the rules, if you're not going to do what you're supposed to do, then you're out. Well, the kindness of God is, is revealed here throughout the rest of this as he continues. Uh, again, he sent to them another servant. And the response, they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And so, verse 5, a third time he sent another. The response, and they killed him. This is escalating, right? This is escalating quite considerably. And so, with many others... So it doesn't give us a number here. This is four plus times that this uh, individual continues to send people. In the book of Matthew, the corresponding text says that more than the first were continued to be sent. So we see the first few times here, there's three or so people that have been sent. Much more than that have been sent after that. So he is trying many, 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 many times. Right? In most of our households with our children, it's a three strikes and you're out rule. Right? More than the first. Their response to all of these additions, some they beat and some they killed. So now the uh, landlord has had it, right? No, wrong. He hasn't had it because he's given them another opportunity. Verse 6, the servants obviously aren't, aren't getting the job done, no fault of their own, but he had still one other. He sent his beloved son. And we see here it says, finally. Okay, this is the last chance. Finally, he sent him, the son, to them saying, they will respect my son. Okay, maybe they just aren't respecting uh, these people that I'm sending as servants to do my business. Surely if I send my own blood, if I send my son, they're going to respect him, right? No. Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, now they're starting to conspire together here, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Right? So they don't know if maybe that the landlord has died, and so now his son is coming to take care of business for him, or what the case may be. But regardless, if we kill the heir, then there's no one for this landlord to leave it to, so it's just going to end up being ours. So why don't we just kill him? 
Sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? And so they took him, they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. Here, again, we are seeing God's kindness on display. because He is continually giving second chances and thirds and fourths and fifths. And it takes a great measure of patience and kindness for any of us to continue to give our children or other people multiple chances, doesn't it? After sharing this parable with these men, he goes on, Jesus uh, says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He asks them a question. After hearing this story, what do you think is going to happen to these guys? Now, in Matthew's account in chapter 21, verse 40, he says it this way. He says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the religious leaders, they said to him, they responded, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his fruits in their season. So if you're paying attention and you're reading through this with me, this is the aha moment. Right? This is what the the religious leaders are trying to do to Jesus. Get him stuck in a corner so they can say, aha! Well, Jesus just kind of did that to them, didn't he? If you want to turn with me, this reminds me of another passage. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, I'll read it for you. But another aha moment that should be ringing in their ears at this moment You may remember this story. David uh, sinned against the Lord with Bathsheba, committed adultery, eventually committed murder. And we get to this spot where Nathan is talking to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. He says this, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of the morsel and and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5. Echoes verse 9. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. This is the aha. Jesus is looking at these gentlemen here, and he asks, what do you think the owner should do? And they said very much the same thing as King David did, that he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyards to someone else, because obviously these tenants are no good. Destroy the tenants. Now, with the parable, there's... uh, illustrations going on here because this isn't uh, very literal 
It's a story, it's a parable about something else. And oftentimes in Scripture, when it's talking about the vineyard, the vineyard, vineyard is Israel itself. And so as he's talking about uh, there being destruction, Jesus was saying that God would destroy the temple, the Jewish sacrificial system, the priesthood, the Sanhedrin, and all the rest. The very heart of Judaism would be destroyed. And the vineyard would be given to the Gentiles. And we find that in 70 AD, Rome wiped out Jerusalem, didn't he? Didn't they? Verse 10, have you not read the scriptures? And he refers to Psalm chapter 118. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So in Psalm chapter 118, read verses 19 through 24 for you. He says, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So Jesus asked these men, have you not read this scripture? This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. At this point, they're, they're kind of picking up on the fact that um, I think he's talking about us here, Right? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. We see this uh, again in previous uh, verses and chapters as we look through Mark chapter 11 in uh, verse 18 speaks of this. So you look back just a little bit and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to not just arrest Jesus, but what does your text say? To destroy him, to kill him, for they feared Jesus. They feared the gospel. They feared everything that Jesus represented. Now, why would the religious leaders of the day be in fear of Jesus? Isn't this the one that you, you, you care about and talk about and want to tell all of your congregations about? Isn't that what we do here? Preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? These religious leaders were more interested with their own selfishness, their own popularity, their own standing before the people. What did Jesus come to do? Jesus came to share this, this what seemed like new gospel to them. It's no longer just an uh, acts-based, actions-based Religion that we're living, that here we have the law, do these things and life will be good. Jesus has come to put, do away with the old law in the sense of this isn't the only thing. But me, myself, I, Jesus, I have come to bring salvation. And his whole earthly ministry is to express and explain that. In senior high, we've been going through the book of John, and we've seen a lot of miracles transpire throughout his ministry. Really? Apparently Siri wanted to go to the New King James Version instead. Sorry. 
We've been in the book of John, and we've been looking at these miracles transpire and, and ask the students, why does Jesus do these miracles? What's the purpose? The answer, to show his might, to show his power. It's a, a way in which he is authenticating who he is and what he has come here to do. The unfortunate part for, for mankind, for those that were, were seeing these miracles, and this is why Jesus continued, continually would do them and say, now keep this to yourself, don't tell anybody. Right, Because he knew that as soon as these people start sharing this, everyone's going to be focused on the so-called magic show. The temporal aspect of the miracle. They're enamored with what just happened, how you, you healed my physical need or, or pr provided for me my physical needs. All right, and, and you took care of it. But there's something deeper, greater that, that Jesus is trying to communicate here is that, yes, I can do these, but guess what? I can do far greater than that. Not only can I take care of your temporal uh, needs, but I am here to totally, take, uh, totally blow your minds when it comes to your spiritual needs as well. Yes, lame man, you're on the ground, you cannot walk, but you have a far greater need than just pick up your mat and walk. You need a savior for your life because once this life is over, you are going to one of two places. The spiritually dead are going to hell, my friends. That was true then, it's true today, right now. Jesus is giving so many opportunities to these religious leaders to have that light bulb come on and realize just what they're doing. And who they're truly serving themselves. One commentator said of parables that a parable is being told to either instruct or to harden. So as you listen to the parable, you're either going to take the instruction and you're going to change, right? Evaluate your life through this parable and make the changes in your life that you need to to conform more to the likeness of Jesus, or two, your heart is just going to be further hardened. Guess what happened with the religious leaders here? It just hardened their hearts. Wait, you're telling me that I'm wrong? You're telling me that I can't do this and I can't do that and I've got to sacrifice this and that and the other thing and I, I don't get to live in the penthouse suite anymore and I've got to elevate you over me? Hmm... And like many of us, when we choose to go against God, make the wrong choice, these men are dooming themselves. As we get into verse 10 and 11 here, we see the triumph of God. The stone that the builders rejected. The builders here, it's speaking of the wise or the knowledgeable, in this case, the religious leaders. They have rejected the stone. Who's the stone? Jesus is the stone. Right? Jesus is the stone. Now, in the Old Testament, we get on, he rejected, and he became the cornerstone. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, Israel was that cornerstone. Israel was what God was using. It was a part of his plan until Jesus came. Because God knew the whole plan from the beginning. Amen? Right? And it's just progressively being revealed to them and to us. And so the cornerstone in the Old Testament was Israel at that point in time. 
That's who God was using as part of the, his plan, which eventually led into the New Testament to Jesus. And so this stone that you once rejected has now become the cornerstone. Now, if anyone here uh, has any proclivity to, to construction or building, uh, I have a very limited understanding of it, okay? But I know enough to, to be able to explain to you what is a cornerstone, right? Without a cornerstone, you're going to have a pretty warped and crooked building, Right? Okay, the cornerstone is the piece that, that is usually set at the foundation, at the corner of the building that marks and gives you direction where you're going to go from there. So as you're laying bricks and you're going down the line, you look back at that cornerstone and make sure that it's in alignment with that brick. Because if you don't do that, if you just lay a brick and then lay a brick and then lay a brick and you just look at those two, okay, and then I'll go to this one, make sure those two are even, and go to this one, make sure those two are even. Guess what happens as you start to go, right? You start having a very curved wall. This cornerstone is essential. It's foundational to having a structure that is sturdy and symmetrical. Jesus Christ, my friends, is our spiritual cornerstone because he is the one that we need to keep our eyes fixed on so that this life doesn't look like that curved wall. Give me an amen for that one, please. He is the cornerstone. We fix our eyes on him daily, all the time. You have a decision to make. Where do you look? Jesus. You have struggles coming into your life. You don't know what's going on. Where do you look? reorient on the cornerstone. He ain't going anywhere. And just in case we didn't already know this, all of this is the Lord's doing, right? Not yours, not mine. Certainly not the religious leaders of the day. And it's marvelous in our eyes. It's, it's like in Ephesians where Paul talks about the mystery of the gospel. And they were seeking to arrest him. We mentioned this already. Mark eleven eighteen 18 uses the phrase to destroy. But they feared. The plot to arrest or kill was... Uh, author Danny Aiken uses the terminology conniving to seize him. So there's some premeditation going on here. They're trying to be crafty and think about what they can do. And eventually they would get what they want, right? Eventually they would get the, what they want and Jesus would be uh, imprisoned and tortured and murdered on the cross of Calvary. But what man intends for harm, God intends for good. What man intended for selfishness, God intends for selflessness. What man intends for death, God intends for life. This is where Aiken calls this the glorious reversal. This glorious reversal. Because here we have these religious leaders uh, conniving towards something. And it's actually going to be flipped around on them. So Jesus just continues to flip the scripts. Right? And to some degree, it's kind of a hilarious thing to see that you think that you're going to flip the script on Jesus and then he just ultimately flips it on you. 
Calvin said it this way. He said, whatever may be the contrivances of men, God has at the same time declared that in setting up the kingdom of Christ, his power will be what? Victorious. Period. That's the end. God will be victorious. Now, Satan, his minions, these religious leaders that had hardened hearts that were not focusing on Jesus whatsoever, they might win some of the battles, so to speak. But as you've heard the phrase, who wins the war? God does. God will win. This glorious reversal is just so beautiful that only God can take something so devastating, so wrong, so bleak, and turn it into something good. And again, they perceived that he had told the parable against them. Well, this is a very astute group, right? We see in Mark 11, verse 19, the same very thing. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So Jesus kind of flipped the script on them. What'd they do? Tucked their tail between their legs and they left. Here we go again. So they left him and they went away. So as I've heard Pastor Mark say before, they took their ball and they left. Right? We're not going to play anymore. They didn't get their way. They found that they weren't going to win right now, so they moved on. What I would like to ask for, for you, for me, as we consider this text, in this parable, I see us so often as the tenant. We have God who has not only created us, which gives him ownership, but after the sin that separated us from God, he bought us with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So he kind of owns us twofold here. And yet every time, maybe not every time, in the parable it's every time, but I want to ask for us, when God comes to you to get from you which is rightfully his, how do you respond? Great Commission gives us our marching orders, and you have the opportunities to share the gospel with people, to pray for people, to give of your time to help and encourage other people. What do we do with that? Do we beat them on the head and send them away? We've used this many times here. God, man, Christ response, right? As we consider the gospel, as we consider uh, our services here at First Baptist. And the focal point here, as we think about the gospel, first and foremost, God loved us. He created us. He created us for relationship with him. But man, right? Second comes man. What happened? Sin. We chose to rebel against him. We decided that we had a better understanding of how to live our lives than God did. And so we made our objection. Then comes Christ. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, made us what, teenagers? Alive. 
together with Christ. For by grace we have been saved. Christ came, died on the cross for the the penalty that you and I both deserve for this sin. How do we respond to that is the fourth and final aspect. God loved, we sinned, Christ died. How do you respond? How do you respond? Do you respond by saying, yep, thanks, nope. I like my life. I like being in control of my life because let's be honest, it's really about control here, right? We all love to have control over our lives and our circumstances, How are we going to respond to God? Because Scripture tells us, just as Jesus did in this parable to the, to the religious leaders, let me tell you where your sin's going to lead. Destruction. Frankly, you actually told me the answer, right? I asked you the question. And they said, destruction. And as as terrible as this sounds back in Scripture here, the same is true today. Because if we live our lives for self, if we forsake God, the one who loves us, gave his son for us, and we forsake that, we say, no, thank you, then your future is the very same as these religious leaders. Destruction. Only if you recognize your current state as a sinner, recognize that God came or Jesus came to be our uh, propitiation, to be our, uh, our, take our place and die on the cross for you, which you deserve to do. Only if that takes place are you going to be able to experience the true salvation of, of Jesus Christ. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be what? Right? That's a promise. It's a promise right here in the very word of God. If you're sitting here today, this morning, and you've not trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to urge you, I want to encourage you, please make that decision today, sooner than later. right? Because as we see that the, these guys in the parable continue to get second chances, well, the second chances are going to run out at some point. No one here knows when your last breath is going to be. You don't know if you're going to walk out into that parking lot and step on that one spot of ice that the salt didn't thaw or melt, slip and and hit your head on the pavement. You don't know if you're going to be able to make it home in your car today. You don't know what today and the future for your life holds. So this may very well be your very last chance. I don't know. But why gamble? Except the free gift of salvation today. Don't be like one of these religious leaders. Don't be a selfish, all-about-yourself kind of person. Would you pray with me, please? Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. But God, I thank you for you. I thank you for your love, for your mercy that you have shown to us each and every single day. God, I thank you that you love me so much that you gave me chances. And that as I continue to say no and send this message of yours back to you, bloodied and bruised, God, that you continued to persist until that day that I did recognize who you are and what you have done for me. 
God, I pray for everyone here that if, if there's someone that hasn't received you, that they would recognize their sinful state and that you are the only way, truth, and the life. The only way to the Father is through you. And for those that do know you, Father, this parable is just as uh, pertinent to, to us because there are times when you come to us seeking the fruit, seeking the produce that is rightfully yours from us. And we say, oh yeah, I forgot. Or we say, I don't have it. Or we say, no, not today. God, empower us through your Holy Spirit, I pray, to ward off the devil, his minions, and all of the selfishness that we so easily enjoy and focus on you and your son. May our response be one that is pleasing to you. In your name we pray, amen. in his
from Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Father God, may we this day and the days to come keep our eyes solely fixed on you, our chief cornerstone. In your name we pray. Amen. Our God. 